Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, January 26th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Germany and the U.S. approved tanks for Ukraine. The doomsday clock is set closer to midnight. The Pope says being gay isn't a crime. A report finds that 42% of U.K. asylum seekers facing deportation to Rwanda are married. England and Wales see spikes in excess deaths. The European Human Rights Court rules it can adjudicate the MH17 case against Russia. A report finds that half of U.S. mass attacks are motivated by grievances. Mike Pompeo is slammed for criticizing Jamal Khashoggi. Tesla announces record profits. And a study links antidepressants to antibiotic resistance. In our top story, we look at day 336 of the Ukraine conflict as Germany and U.S. approve tanks for Ukraine. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Al Jazeera, NBC, TASS, and Ukraine Forum. Following days of hesitation and mounting pressure, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz on Wednesday announced that his government would provide Ukraine with Leopard 2 tanks while approving requests for other countries to do the same. Germany said it would initially send 14 tanks from its own stocks, while stating that the aim was for Germany and its allies to send a total of two battalions, equivalent to 88 vehicles. Quote, this is the result of intensive consultations, once again with our allies and international partners, Schultz said. Following Germany's announcement, Russia's ambassador to the country, Sergei Necheyev, hit out at the decision and said it takes the conflict to a new level saying, quote, this extremely dangerous decision takes the conflict to a new level of confrontation. Germany's decision was followed by a closely coordinated announcement from U.S. President Joe Biden that the U.S. plans to send 31 Abrams tanks to Ukraine and provide the training needed to operate the vehicles. In addition to the tanks, which Biden says will take time to deliver, the U.S. will also send eight M88 vehicles. Meanwhile, Anatoly Anatonov, Russia's ambassador to the U.S., had similarly strong words for America, calling it, quote, another blatant provocation against the Russian Federation. He added, no one should have illusions about who is the real aggressor in the current conflict. On the ground, after Russia claimed to have taken control of Solodar in Donetsk last week, Ukraine's armed forces conceded on Wednesday that it has withdrawn from the settlement. Meanwhile, Ukrainian officials said 10 civilians were injured in Russian attacks on Donetsk over the past day. Pro-Russian media said one civilian was killed in Ukrainian attacks for the same time period. Elsewhere, Ukrainian officials reported that one civilian was killed and six more were injured in Russian attacks on Kherson in the past day. Two civilians were injured in attacks on Kharkiv, while one was injured in Zaporizhia. Sumy, Chernihiv, and Mykolaiv were also shelled without reports of civilian casualties. Eric, thank you for the update on the situation in Ukraine. Here on the Improve the News podcast, we separate the facts from the narrative spin. You just heard the facts about that story. We have a few narrative spins attached to it. Our first is an anti-Russian narrative, and it's provided by CNN. The decision by Germany and the U.S. to send battle tanks is momentous because these unlike missile defense systems, for instance, are not considered defensive weapons. Despite the slight disarray, 
This signals to Russia that Western allies are committed to fully backing Ukraine in the war and seeing that it comes out victorious. A pro-Russian narrative is coming from TASS. While Russia will destroy these tanks like all other NATO equipment, this escalation unmasks the West's real intention in Ukraine, which is seeking the strategic defeat of Russia. This move should leave no illusions as to who the real aggressors are in this conflict. And from time to time, we get statistic-based nerd narratives. This one says there's a 2% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory, Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea, as independent before 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Both Germany and the U.S. are giving tanks. Adam, are you giving tanks? I I give tanks every night before I go to bed. (laughs) Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. The doomsday clock's hand moves closer to midnight. And here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, Yahoo, New York Times, Bulletin, CNN, and Live Science. On Tuesday, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists set the Doomsday Clock, a symbolic representation of global challenges, to 90 seconds to midnight, the closest it's ever been, and 10 seconds closer than it had been for the past three years. A group of atomic scientists, including Albert Einstein, created the clock in 1947 to symbolize how close humanity is to the end of the world. The closer it moves to midnight, representing global catastrophe, the dire the warning. The reason for moving the doomsday clock forward were, quote, largely but not exclusively due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, including concerns of greater risks of nuclear war. The ongoing threats posed by climate change, biological disasters such as COVID, and the breakdown of global norms and institutions further influenced the decision to move the clock forward. Rachel Bronson, president and CEO of the Bulletin, stated that the U.S. government, NATO, and Ukraine must open a multitude of channels for dialogue to turn back the clock. The Doomsday Clock is set annually by the Chicago-based nonprofit organizations, scientists, and experts, including 11 Nobel laureates. The furthest it's ever stood from midnight was 17 minutes in 1991. Thank you for the facts of that story, Adam. We look at the spins that have emerged, beginning with Narrative A, coming from CNN. Global threats have risen substantially from regional wars, climate change, and COVID. As the doomsday clock sounds an alarm for humanity, we need urgent multilateral global action and conversation to deter rising tensions. If there was ever a time for world leaders to turn back the clock, it's now. And there's a narrative B provided by Wired. The doomsday clock, having now arbitrarily ticked down the seconds to nuclear apocalypse for three quarters of a century, isn't a predicator of global nuclear conflict, but merely a metaphor. There's little to no science, data, indicators, or citations in the dire warning. It's only speculation and punditry, which is too often confused for scientific portent. And not surprisingly, there is a nerd narrative for this story. It says there's a 50% chance that the doomsday clock will reach midnight by January of the year 2100. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. 
I don't know about you, Adam, but when I was a little kid, the doomsday clock was always at midnight when I was in trouble. (laughs) Well, that sounds like you got a serious problem going on in your household when you were a kid. In our next story, news coming from the Vatican, as the Pope says, being gay is a sin, not a crime. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, CBS, Fox News, NBC, and ABC. Pope Francis, speaking to the Associated Press, has criticized laws that criminalize homosexuality as, quote, unjust, adding that being homosexual isn't a crime. But Francis reaffirmed the Catholic teaching that homosexuality is a sin. In a divergence from previous popes, Francis also said that discriminating against LGBTQ plus people is sinful. It is believed that 67 countries or jurisdictions have laws criminalizing homosexual activity. Of those countries, 11 can or do impose the death penalty. The UN has repeatedly called for an end to such laws. Catholic bishops in various parts of the world continue to support laws criminalizing homosexuality. Francis said those bishops need to undergo a process to change their views. Part of Francis's papacy has focused on outreach to LGBTQ+, as he has repeatedly ministered to members of that community. Francis also supports legal protections for same-sex couples, although he stops short of endorsing gay marriage. Despite his efforts, Francis has been criticized by the Catholic gay community for issuing a decree saying the Church cannot bless same-sex unions. In 2008, the Vatican, under Pope Benedict XVI, declined to sign a U.N. declaration calling for the decriminalization of homosexuality. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. We have a progressive narrative attached to it provided by Archive. Pope Francis was already more accepting of the LGBTQ community than his predecessors. And these words are a historic step towards further acceptance by the Church. Although the Church still might not be as open as it should be, Francis's words could save lives in places where there are severe consequences for LGBTQ populations. Francis's words come just as he's about to make a historic visit to Africa, where these rights are under threat. Thank you, Adam. There is a conservative narrative coming from the American conservative. While the LGBTQ community shouldn't be discriminated against, Francis's continued pushing of the LGBTQ agenda is remaking Catholic teaching into another body espousing progressive ideology under the guise of traditionalism. There is no middle ground. The Church has nearly two millennia of teachings on this issue, and Francis's attempt to reverse this is a repudiation of Catholic doctrine. And the Nerds of Metaculous have a prediction that there's a 2% chance that there will be an openly LGBT Pope before the year 2050. A recent report out of the UK says that 42% of asylum seekers facing deportation to Rwanda are married. And here are the facts as agreed upon by a Guardian. Care for Calais, UK Daily, Al Jazeera, and BBC News. A new survey released Wednesday by the Campaign Coalition together with refugees found that 42%, nearly half of asylum seekers facing deportation from the UK to Rwanda, are married or engaged, and 20% have children, according to the charity Care for Calais, which conducted the analysis in a sample of 213 people, the findings contradict government claims that the policy of sending asylum seekers to the African country 
targets single men. It also found that 13 of the people surveyed who received a home office notice of intent between August of 2022 and January of 2023 were women, and more than 60% reported evidence of modern slavery or torture in their country of origin or during their journey to the UK. According to the survey, most of the asylum seekers at risk of deportation to Rwanda had fled from countries where more than 80% of the people were recognized as refugees by the UK, with nearly 72% arriving from countries such as Afghanistan, Eritrea, Iran, Sudan, and Syria. Meanwhile, the High Court of London recently granted permission to legally challenge the Rwanda asylum plan, after ruling in December of 2022 that the government's plan was lawful. Last year, more than 45,000 people crossed the English Channel into the UK, while several died trying. Under the controversial UK-Rwanda asylum scheme, announced in April of 2022, some asylum seekers crossing the English Channel to the UK are sent to Rwanda to claim asylum. The plan is intended to discourage other migrants from crossing the English Channel and deter human smuggling. Thank you, Adam. We look at the two spins that have emerged from this story. The left narrative is the first one coming from Human Rights Watch. While the UK likes to present its humanitarian face when talking about Ukrainian refugees, brown or black migrants are treated as third-class humans. The Rwanda deal is the most prominent example of the increasing anti-human and perfidious policy of externalized migration control. Until the UK meets its responsibilities, it must forfeit any right to portray itself as a champion of human rights. And left narratives are typically backed up by a right narrative. We've got one here provided by Miriam West. One thing must not be forgotten when discussing the Asylum Pact. The majority of Britons welcome the deportation of illegal asylum seekers to Rwanda. At the same time, Britain is far more tolerant and welcoming of ethnic minorities than most of Europe. The problem is the misconceived ideology of multiculturalism, which leads to uncontrolled immigration and puts Britain's social cohesion and political stability at risk. In our next story, news coming from the UK as England and Wales see a major spike in excess deaths. And here are the facts as agreed upon by The Standard, Telegraph, Independent, Express, Wales Online and Daily Mail. The number of weekly excess deaths in England and Wales between January 6th through the 13th has hit its highest total in nearly two years, with 2,837 deaths above the average for the time of year, according to the Office for National Statistics, or ONS. Over 17,000 people died during the week ending on January 13th, the most since both nations were in lockdown due to the alpha variant of COVID in 2021. Outside of COVID-effective years, the weekly deaths are the highest since January 2015. While in February 2021, the loss of life involving COVID accounted for 37% of all deaths. In the most recent week, the virus has only accounted for 5% of total deaths. Health experts have pointed towards a surge in flu cases in the days and weeks leading up to Christmas as a factor. Vina Raleigh, a senior fellow at think tank The King's Fund, has pointed toward unmet healthcare needs during the pandemic, alongside unprecedented pressures on the National Health Service as causes for the surge. Meanwhile, 24% of the recorded deaths in the first two weeks of 2023 were attributed to flu and pneumonia in England and Wales, with total excess deaths being 14% and 20% higher than average during the same period. 
several British members of parliament have called for an urgent investigation into the excess deaths. According to Labour's shadow public health minister, Andrew Gwynn, the 50,000 deaths more than otherwise expected in 2022 marked the highest excess death figure since 1951, excluding the pandemic. Thank you, Eric. Again, this round of spin starts with a left narrative, and this one's provided by The Guardian. Britain's excess death rate is at a disastrous high, and the issue far surpasses COVID. Dismal ambulance response times, the NHS staffing crisis, alongside the wider structural issue of social inequality in the middle of a cost-of-living disaster, are all to blame as part of Tory failures. Excess deaths are the result of a broken system pushed by an ideologically crazed government. This could have been avoided. And The Spectator gives us a right narrative for this story. Although many blame the government for the excess deaths and the state of the NHS, in reality, the issue stems from COVID policies that led to long-term damage to the economy and the UK's health services. While anyone who pushed against lockdowns and masks was deemed radical, we are now seeing the results of these policies that were political rather than scientific, and the mainstream media refuses to admit its role in the disaster. In an update on flight MH17, the court can adjudicate the case against Russia. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Netherlands Times, Reuters, BBC News, Guardian, and Al Jazeera. The European Court of Human Rights has ruled that it can adjudicate on cases brought by the Ukraine and the Netherlands against Russia over the downing of Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 in 2014. The European Court's decision does not rule on the merits of the cases, but instead shows that the court considers Russia can be held liable for human rights violations. All 298 people on the MH17 flight from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur died when it was hit by a Russian surface-to-air missile in July of 2014 during fighting between pro-Russia forces and Ukrainian forces in the Donbass region. 196 Dutch citizens were killed on flight MH17, and the Netherlands is seeking to bring a case against Russia for violations of the European Convention on Human Rights. Last year, a Dutch court found three men guilty of the murder of 298 MH17 passengers the Russian nationals Igor Gurkin and Sergei Dubinsky, and a Ukrainian Leonid Karchenko, received life sentences but remain at large. The cases were filed before Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. Despite no longer being a part of the European Convention on Human Rights, the court says it has jurisdiction on cases already started before Russia's withdrawal from the convention and could be ordered to pay damages. However, the court has no way to enforce its rulings. Russia denies any involvement or responsibility for the downing of MH17 and also denied any presence in Ukraine in 2014. Those were the facts, and here are the spins. A pro-establishment narrative is the first one, coming from Associated Press. Although the downing of the MH17 flight was perpetrated by Russian separatists and not Russia itself, Moscow still had a significant influence on the separatists' military strategy. Russia provided the separatists with political and economic support, including providing weapons and carrying out artillery attacks requested by the rebels. Russia violated the European Convention on Human Rights and needs to be held accountable for its actions. And the establishment critical narrative is provided by Reuters. 
Russia no longer belongs to the European Convention on Human Rights, so no matter what the court says, the rulings do not matter and have little standing, as they can't be enforced. The impact of any ruling will be largely symbolic. Western countries are showing bias because of their support of the Ukrainian government and are trying to punish Russia for actions it had no part in. In a special report, half of the U.S. mass attacks have been motivated by grievances. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN, NBC, CBS, Axios, and Washington Post. A report issued on Wednesday by the U.S. Secret Service's National Threat Assessment Center, or NTAC, found that half of the mass attacks in the U.S. from 2016 to 2020 were sparked by personal, domestic, or workplace disputes. It is also highlighted that most attackers had experienced a significant personal challenge, financial, family, and health issues, in the year before they committed the mass violence, with nearly two-thirds having a criminal history. National Threat Assessment Center Chief Lena Alathari stressed at a press conference on Wednesday that about a quarter of attackers were motivated by some kind of belief in controversial theories or hateful ideologies, of which at least six were radicalized online. Researchers reviewed 173 incidents that resulted in three or more individuals injured or killed across public or semi-public spaces, including businesses, places of worship, and schools in 37 states and Washington, D.C. The report encouraged communities to promote and facilitate early intervention, urging them not to wait for a direct and specific threat to be made before taking action and suggesting that workplaces should establish behavioral threat assessment programs. The U.S. has experienced 39 mass shootings in less than a month into 2023, more than any other January since the year 2014, according to the Gun Violence Archive, with 70 people being killed and 167 people being injured. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. We have a left narrative attached to it provided by CNN. While each attack has a unique motive ranging from workplace disputes to mental health issues and hateful ideologies, it is undisputable that the widespread availability of firearms in the U.S. is behind the country's epidemic of mass shootings. Given America's deep-rooted suspicion of authority and the inability of its political system to tackle this problem, there is little reason to believe that mass shootings will subside. The right narrative is coming from The Federalist. Despite homicides and gun ownership decreasing since the 1960s, mass attacks have been trending upward due to the erosion of traditional values and the social structure in the U.S. Liberals have turned U.S. culture toxic by causing a harmful plunge in two-parent households, divisive gender issues, and excusing individuals from responsibility. Eric, I don't think they mentioned the, the title of this report was called The Defense for Unjust Hatefulness, also known as a duh. That comes from the uh, Captain Obvious files, doesn't it? That's right. Pompeo has been slammed for criticizing Khashoggi in his new book. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Guardian, Yahoo, Washington Post, and Axios. Mike Pompeo, who served as U.S. Secretary of State and CIA Director under Trump, was criticized Tuesday after it was revealed his new book questions the journalistic credentials of murdered Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi and lambasts what he described as overly sympathetic media coverage of the killing. Khashoggi, a Saudi citizen who lived in the U.S., 
had once been close to the Saudi royal family before becoming increasingly critical of its de facto leader, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. He disappeared October 2, 2018, after entering the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. It was later revealed that 15 Saudi officials took part in his assassination, and a CIA investigation concluded that bin Salman ordered the killing. In his book titled Never Give an Inch, Pompeo writes, he didn't deserve to die, but we need to be clear about who he was, and too many in the media were not. Pompeo criticized Khashoggi as an activist rather than a journalist, claiming that he was a journalist only to the extent that I and many other public figures are journalists. We sometimes get our writing published, but we also do other things. Fred Ryan, publisher and CEO of the Washington Post, responded to Pompeo's claims by explaining that Khashoggi upheld the values of free speech and freedom of the press. Ryan also called Pompeo shameful for spreading vile characterizations and suggesting that they were a ploy to increase book sales. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Narrative A is coming from MSNBC. In one fell swoop, Pompeo managed to dabble in some light racism claiming the killing of journalists is the norm in Middle Eastern society and in normalizing the murder of journalists, which is a worldwide tragedy. He also misrepresents the career of Khashoggi, who worked as an editor and reporter for more than 30 years. Fortunately, Pompeo's career and time spent around Trump have guaranteed no one will take him seriously. And the narrative B provided by Fox News. The Washington Post attack on Pompeo is no surprise since the paper has been steadfast to undermine anything done by the Trump administration, including relationships forged with the Saudis to keep the U.S. safe. The Post might be the ones taking an outrageous stance to make money. In our next story, Tesla announces a record profit. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Reuters, Finance, Bloomberg, and Investing. On Wednesday, Elon Musk's electric vehicle maker Tesla reported nearly $3.7 billion in fourth quarter profit, up 59% from the year prior and a record profits report for the company. The company also announced that its revenue in the last three months of 2022 was $24.32 billion, up from some analysts' predictions of $24.16 billion. And its automotive operation margin was the lowest in two years, at 25.9%. Although Tesla adopted price cuts on its vehicles in the U.S., China, and some European markets, they didn't kick in until the first quarter, so the fourth quarter report wasn't affected by those cuts. Since its last earnings report, Tesla has frequented headlines after Elon Musk, who also heads SpaceX, sold much of his Tesla stock in order to purchase Twitter for $44 billion in October. Since the start of the year, the company's vehicle sales have jumped 46% to 1.9 million, though that's under the company's goal of 50%. Following Tesla's fourth quarter reporting, the company's stock saw a slight surge in after-hours trading. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. Narrative A is provided by Forbes. Musk can brag about setting another record for profits, but the positive news might be enough to quell the anxiety of investors. Aside from what might be going on with Musk away from Tesla, the company could be facing softening demand, and the dip in its usually competitive automotive gross and the dip in its usually competitive automotive gross margin could lead to a major drop in its stock price. 
Business Insider is giving us Narrative B. Musk's success with all his businesses makes him a Wall Street favorite, and there's no reason to shy away from believing in him now. The latest report paints an optimistic picture for 2023 and signals plenty of upside for the electric vehicle maker's stock, regardless of what else Musk is dabbling in. You know what? You got to hand it to Musk. You may question him in his dealing with Twitter or Tesla or going to the moon, but everything seems to be turning out pretty positive for him in the end. He's quite the mover and shaker. And our final story is a study that antidepressants may be linked to antibiotic resistance. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Nature, New York Post, and El Pies. A new study from Australia's Queensland University has shown that the use of antidepressants may cause antibiotic resistance in the E. coli bacteria. If accurate, the link would mirror the broader casual relationship between the resistance of disease-causing bacteria to antibiotics and the overprescription of those drugs. The study compared one E. coli strain, MG1655, to five antidepressants, including Prozac and Lexapro, and compared their strength against that of six types of antibiotics, such as beta-lactams, penicillin derivatives, and macrolids. In the lab-grown bacteria, the antidepressants caused the cells to generate reactive oxygen species, toxic molecules that activate the microbes' defense mechanisms, allowing the bacteria to eliminate various molecules, including antibiotics. The research published in the journal PNAS also predicted that antidepressants would accelerate the mutation and emergence of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, as well as help to maintain and even increase resistance over time. Experiments with the antidepressants led to the highest number of resistant bacterial cells, with the lead author of the study, Jianhua Gao, saying that the resistance develops even after a few days of exposure. The findings come as estimates show 1.2 million people died due to antibiotic resistance in 2019 alone. Gao said his lab plans to look further at the microbiomes of mice given antidepressants, as early data has shown that the drugs can change the animal's gut microbiota and promote gene transfer. However, he also cautioned people not to stop taking antidepressants solely due to the study. Thank you, Adam. This story has generated several spins, and we begin with Narrative A, coming from Daily Cal. It is early days in studies concerning antidepressants and antibiotic resistance, and this evidence is not yet conclusive. However, we know for sure that the overuse of antibiotics itself causes problems for public health. Intensive farming methods mean most livestock and poultry are pumped with antibiotics, which then enter humans through consumption. This, coupled with the contamination of our water supply, has left our species vulnerable to some of the world's most dangerous diseases. And Newsweek has provided a narrative B. The idea that antidepressants are linked to resistance to antibiotics has been known by the scientific community for years. This new research is only strengthening pre-existing theories. As millions of people are set to die from this phenomenon in the coming decades, it's time to prioritize the issue and look for ways to avoid what were once easily preventable deaths. Narrative C coming from University College London. The drastic increase in antidepressant use over the last 30 years should itself be questioned. New research from University College London has shown that serotonin levels in those with depression are the same as those without, if not greater, 
suggesting that Big Pharma pushed the chemical imbalance theory of depression solely to make profits. If overuse of antidepressants could be contributing to antibiotic resistance, as well as causing unnecessary human suffering, the culture around their consumption may be in need of radical reform. And the Metaculous Prediction community is going to sign us off with a nerd narrative stating that there is a 50% chance that there will be at least 64,200 deaths in the U.S. due to antibiotic-resistant infections in 2035. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, January 26th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.